Caffeine, cares, clutter, and chattel. 12 months or less to my ideal outcome. It's Leaning Toward Wisdom, the podcast. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. My name is Randy Cantrell. I'm your host here. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. Modern tales of an ancient pursuit. We're in this journey together as we try to lean more toward wisdom and further and further away from our own foolishness. And it is not work for the faint of heart. I hope all is well with you and yours. As we hit the record button, today is Friday, July the 23rd. I had to look at the calendar. July the 23rd, 2021. Hey, you want? Uh, let's have a slumber party, shall we? Uh, well, we'll make it a virtual slumber party. I'll take you back a number of nights ago, 3 a.m., is whispering as it always does. Well, actually 3 a.m. starts whispering at about midnight. It's just how I roll. Uh, there is a lamp in the corner of the yellow studio that is normally illuminated like right now with a daylight led bulb. I don't know. I'm, I I started to say what the Kelvin is. Is it 5,000 Kelvin? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's not one of those yellow tint and it's not a soft white. It's a daylight bulb. Uh, it usually is illuminating that bulb in the daytime at nighttime, like now, like at 3 AM when I'm, I'm, well, I'm reminiscing here. I unscrew that bulb and I put in another bulb because in the quietness of the night, well, <clears throat> that bulb is just a tad too bright. So I insert a red LED bulb. Feels like a photographer's darkroom in here. Except I'm not developing film. I'm developing ideas. And as always, today's show is designed, well, to provoke us to think and to hopefully provoke us individually and collectively to figure some things out. The headphones are on, it's 3 a.m., the red bulb is illuminated, and other than the computer screens in front of me, that's the light in the room, and my iTunes, my Apple iTunes library is launched, which is where I manage my music, and I'm one of these rare people that I buy music, I download music. I do have that Apple, what is it, is it iTunes Share you know, for 25 bucks or so a year, it's in the cloud. And, you know, so Ron and I both have access to all of the tunes that are in my library. The library mostly consists of all of the music that I have bought through the years that I have downloaded, uh, all the CDs that I've got, but I scroll, I'm, I'm scrolling. I got the headphones on. It's 3 AM. It's dark. It's quiet. And I'm scrolling through recently added and in recently added, the first thing that pops up is Tom Petty and the heartbreakers angel dream angel dream. It was released, 
I don't know. It was released this month. I miss Tom. I miss the heartbreakers. The ringtone on my phone and my phone is, do you leave your ringer on your phone? I, I mean, I so rarely turn the ringer on my phone. I, it, it, it stays in not airplane mode, but it stays in silent or vibrate mode. 95% of the time. I should turn the ringer on more because my ringtone is you wreck me. You wreck me. That proves that I've got a real fondness for Tom's music. Hours and hours and hours are spent in the darkness of night for me with headphones on listening to music. So as you join me on this fateful evening at 3 a.m. in the morning with the red bulb glowing over in the corner, track three. I get to track three. I just start with track one and I get to track three and it fires up a song, change the locks. I'll embed this in the show notes over at the website, leaning toward wisdom.com episode 13 season 2021. I can relate to this song. I can relate to this song now more than ever here. Listen to these lyrics. No, I'm not going to sing them. <laughs> I'm, I'm not Tom. I changed the lock on my front door so you can't see me anymore and you can't come inside my house and you can't lie down on my couch. I changed the lock on my front door and I changed the number on my phone. So you can't call me up at home and you can't say those things to me that make me fall down on my knees. I changed the number on my phone because I changed the kind of car I drive. So you can't see me when I go by and you can't chase me up the street and you can't knock me off my feet. I changed the kind of car I drive. I changed the kind of clothes I wear. So you can't find me anywhere. You can't spot me in a crowd. You can't call my name out loud. I changed the kind of clothes I wear. Yeah. I know, you know, I'll leave it to your speculation, but boy, I can really, yeah, I can relate to the song. Uh, the, the song at this particular moment in my life, it, it hits me. Change the locks is the name of the song. It's track three. It's now about 3.22 in the morning, and I'm beginning to wonder for the umpteenth time. I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking about this insomnia, um, which is a lifelong pursuit. Okay, I don't pursue it. It pursues me. Uh, but this is not some recent ordeal. But for the umpteenth time, I do consider caffeine. Because occasionally, well, well, you know, what? how much caffeine you eat? And I'm like, I don't drink a lot of caffeine. And I don't. But I've gone down this rabbit hole so many times before. So, hey, it's 3.22 a.m. I got Tom singing in my headphones, right? Why not? I don't know. I mean, I don't control these things. They just happen. So I'm online and I realize, you know, I'm consuming a about 120 milligrams every day because, well, I'll explain. According to the FDA website, 120 milligrams is not excessive because here's what that website says for healthy adults. The FDA has cited 400 milligrams a day. That's about four or five cups of coffee as an amount, not generally associated with dangerous negative effects. Now, yeah, I read dangerous comma negative effects. I get that some effects can be negative, but dangerous negative. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm not wanting, 
Well, I really don't want negative effects, but I certainly don't want dangerous negative effects. 400 milligrams. It goes on. However, there is a wide variation in both how sensitive people are to the effects of caffeine and how fast they metabolize it. Break it down. So over on my right here, just to the right of my mouse pad, I start doing some basic math because I got a calculator. That's right. I do math with a calculator, kids. And I'm thinking, man, I can't remember. I can't remember how long ago it's been since I consumed 400 milligrams or more. I absolutely did. There's been periods in my life when I was younger, no question. Dr. Pepper was once my drug of choice, the elixir of life. My buddy Stanley and I would call it. And then diet Dr. Pepper and then Dr. Pepper zero. In fact, I could go to my pantry right now and tell you that I have, I've, and I've had them for months. I've got a handful of liter bottles of Dr. Pepper zero. I do have a more recently opened liter bottle of Dr. Pepper zero cherry. Cause I hadn't seen this before, but you know, rarely do I venture away from a 38 ounce bottle of water with a single crystal light strawberry mix inserted. Now, said strawberry mix contains caffeine. I think if memory serves 40 milligrams ish in like one little drink packet. So I'm really not sure that caffeine is that much of a player anymore, but okay, here I am. It's now 3:40 AM and I'm, I'm wondering about it and I've wondered about it a lot. And yes, I have gone off of it. No, it didn't make a hell of beans difference, but I'm thinking, I'm still thinking again, should I give it up completely? I mean, I don't know. These are the kinds of, these are the kinds of things you think about at three forty in the morning when you can't sleep. I do rather doubt caffeine's much of a contributor. Uh, I think it's something more substantial than that. I figure like, well, for starters, there is, there is this rhythm What's it called? Circadian rhythm. I don't know if, I don't know where that name comes from. I'm not that smart, but we do have these rhythms and my rhythm seems to be 90 minutes, lay down, sleep 90 minutes. I'm up eventually find my way back to bed, sleep another 30 minutes. I'm up and it's fine by and large. And I've said before, occasionally eh, once every two to three weeks, there's the crash and burn (laughs) and there's the go to bed and 10 hours later, you wake up kind of a thing. Well, now I, to say I sleep 10 hours straight. No, that's a lie. That never happens, but I'm sitting here in this red glowing light infused yellow studio with the headphones on. And I don't know, it's about 4 AM and track 10 track 10 of Tom's album comes on. And the, the song is climb that hill. Climb that hill. Yeah, I'll embed that music video too. Well, it's not really, it's more of an audio, but it's a YouTube video. One of the lyrics of that is you got to get up and climb that hill, get up and climb that hill. You got to get up and climb that hill. I commonly refer to acts of futility as pushing water up a hill, not climbing a hill. Climbing a hill, I think is way more productive, right? Let's get up the hill. Let's Take the hill. Let's climb the hill. So we're not talking about acts of utility here. 
but I listened to that song and now that, that shifts my brain on this particular evening from thinking about caffeine to another C word. And that is cares cares. You know, it's an interesting term for life's problems. And the first context for me is biblical, you know, cast all your cares on the Lord and you know, cares are, well, we don't really ascribe positive things to cares. Teddy Roosevelt said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So we ascribe caring to positive things, but not cares, not the noun. People sometimes say, yeah, well, you know, he's a loser. He's a, this, he's a something derogatory. He just doesn't care. And they may say, you know, she, she could not care less. So the anti-sentiment is care less, care less. Well, we don't want that. We don't want to be careless. And then modern culture pipes up and admonishes us. You know, you need to stop caring what people think. You do not need to care one whit what people think about you. Selfishness, self-centeredness. Oh no, we don't call them that, but that's really what we're preaching because it's all about you. You do what you want. You be you. And it's, it's promoted as though it's an act of courage mm-hmm. and disregard these voices in your life who are attempting to help you. Don't listen to anybody other than yourself. Sure. You can do that. I rather think it's a high risk proposition, but you can. Now, listen, I'm all for tuning out people who are not there to help us. People who simply want to throw rocks at our parades so that they can feel better about themselves. People who are filled with only harsh, unjustified judgment. Um, but these are not the people who love us. These are not the people who want our very best. These are not the people who are serving us. We really need to give an ear to these people and carefully, and there's a derivative of that word care, carefully consider their feedback. These people who are supportive of us, these people who absolutely, we know they want our best because these are people who can save us from being foolish. Well, they can save us from being more foolish and we all need that. Just the right amount of care and caring. Yeah. And I'm sitting here with Tom Petty in my ears and I'm thinking, you know, good luck with that. I mean, does anybody have that figured out? Our cares, these things that vex us and the things that we care about and why we care about what we care about and Does anybody have all that figured out really, really hard because it's shifting all the time. And for some reason, well, I know why I start thinking about doctors and bedside manners. And I start thinking about some people who tell me about going to see some particular doctor that they don't necessarily believe in, but that doctor has superior bedside manner. And I write, I, I, I type out actually in my notes for this episode, I type out displays of caring displays of caring. And I start thinking about this. Well, here's a question. Do you judge a doctor's competence based on how personable they are? Yeah, so do I. I mean, you realize they could be a complete buffoon medically, right? I mean, okay. Yeah. They got to have a license and all that, but if they are believable and they have this great bedside manner and we can relate to them and they're super nice and friendly and warm and we feel comfortable. We love them. 
We love them, right? Logic does not always dictate our actions. Mark Cuban, the Dallas Mavericks NBA basketball team, he blows things up after the season, uh, fires the coach. Well, we assume fires. Gets rid of the coach, gets rid of the general manager, brings in new new people, and introduces them to the town. And he's talking on Sports Talk Radio, and he's talking in particular about this new general manager that he has hired. And it's some hot shot executive that has worked at Nike for like 20 years and has dealt with all kinds of athletes from all over the world in all kinds of sports and is really evidently by reputation really, really good, really a person who knows how to build relationships. And Cuban says about this guy, lots of people know basketball, but not many people know people. He knows people. Now, to be true, he knows people in two ways. He knows people, literally he knows them, and they know him, but he knows and understands human beings. He knows how to connect. He has the ability to connect to other people, and it's powerful. It's powerful enough enough to lure a high-end guy like him from Nike to Dallas, Texas, to the Dallas Mavericks. It's powerful enough. That's a powerful enough skill that it keeps us going to the same dentists and doctors. Powerful enough that we could change an insurance agent because of it. Or we might hire a new real estate agent. Or anybody else that does stuff for us. We, we like people that are likable sidebar, your honor, let's approach the bench. Cause I don't know. I just about now in the course of the evening or morning, I'm, I'm taking a left turn because I'm online. I'm kind of snooping through. I got Tom in my ear and I'm, I'm doing a little bit of Google browsing and in my social media feed pops up this headline. The vacation you should take based on your introverted Myers-Briggs type. I'll put a link to the article. Now, I am an INFJ. That's my Myers-Briggs type. I've got a I've got a moderate interest in this article. I have a high interest in assessments including Myers-Briggs. I'm not one of these people that I don't hang my hat on, you know, there's disc and there's, there's all kinds of these things. I'm, I'm fascinated by them. I'm not advocating any of them. I am not arguing that any of them uh, are more statistically valid or invalid than any others. I just find them all, I find them interesting. And for me personally, if there's one that I see out there that I can take, I'm going to take it. It's just, it's just part of the discovery of trying to figure out as much about yourself as you can. And I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I'm interested. So I click on the article and I'm interested. Okay. I wonder what kind of vacation they will suggest for me as an INFJ. Now I already know because I know myself that well, and it's pretty close. And if you've been paying attention to me here, you already know that I started a hyper local podcast about the place the place I I really, really love. And the podcast is hot Springs village inside out at hot Springs village inside out.com or for short H S V short for hot Springs village H S V inside out.com. If you're interested 
This is a place over in Arkansas. This is a place that's five hours east of Dallas-Fort Worth. Now, the article says this. Now, keep in mind the headline that got me sidetracked here at three whatever in the morning is the vacation you should take based on your introverted Myers-Briggs type. And here's what it says. INFJ. Have creative space at an Airbnb in a new town. INFJs love learning and being creative, but are often employed or find themselves in situations where they are giving advice, helping people in need, or managing relationships. Being the empathetic one in the room who understands both sides of an issue can really help bring harmony to workplaces and families. However, it can be exhausting as the one in the middle. During the pandemic, with families face-to-face more often, and with lots of drama happening over social media, INFJs may have found themselves caught up in a lot of situations where they're needed. If you're an INFJ, a good vacation idea may be to get away to an Airbnb rental in a quiet town where you can take some time for yourself. Unplug from social media, tell your friends and family you're not available, and just spend time in your mind. Write down those stories that you keep wanting to create but can't find the right time. Let yourself daydream or just get back in tune with your own feelings instead of worrying about everybody else. A creative space is important for many introverts. Let yourself be spontaneously creative just for the joy of it without worrying what others will think, whether that means drawing, painting, or picking up that guitar you've neglected for too long. Hopefully, Your retreat will inspire you with new insights that will recharge you to go back to normal life afterward. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I would just insert instead of going to a new town, I don't want to go to a new town. I would, but that wouldn't be my first choice. My first choice would be to go back to visit Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Yeah, and I'd do an Airbnb there until I can get a place there, which is the goal. That's the ideal outcome. I spend a lot of time with clients talking about the ideal outcome. What is your ideal outcome? That's for each one of us to decide. My ideal outcome is to end up at hot Springs village, Arkansas. Okay. Sidebars over. I've gone, I've clicked, I've read that. Now I come back and I'm still thinking about cares, cares and i'm thinking about you know we want to care we don't want to be careless and we don't want to we don't want to be people that don't care i mean who wants to be around somebody that doesn't care we want to care but there are some things we don't want to care that much about and things that we do care deeply about maybe we would like to lessen the burden of even those cares I mean, I don't know very many people. I do know a few, but I don't know very many people. I haven't met very many people over the course of my life that that genuinely don't want other people to view them favorably. I would say the vast majority of us want other people to view us favorably. Now, that degree of favor that we seek, it can run the gambit, right? I mean, there are people that absolutely just, they live their whole life for the adulation or the approval of other people. And then other others of us, you know, not so much, but we want to be well thought of. We want our reputation to be good. We want our influence to be positive and so forth. But at the same time, we don't want to care. We don't want to care too much about what other people think. 
And in the context of cares, as in the cares of our life, we're not talking about joys. And that's interesting to me. Nobody says, yeah, you know, the cares of life and they, they include in that the joy. No, it's the burdens. It's these things that vex us. It's these things that we wring our hands about their cares because we care about them. We worry about them. We fret over them. We wrestle with them. We worry about them. We wonder what should we do with them? And it seems to me that one of our shared challenges as human beings is figuring out how to care enough about some things and how to care a little bit less about other things. And can we just kind of hit, hit a really good spot and get just the right amount of caring. And for me, I can tell you that just seems like an impossible task. I'm not saying it is impossible. It just seems impossible. You know, it's funny. You can watch these quote unquote influencers and she can post something on Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat. You know, I don't care what anybody thinks, but it's real clear very quickly that that's a lie because all engagements on social media, constantly preaching this message as though they're, she's trying to convince herself that she doesn't care what anybody thinks. And it's very clear she that that's the obvious elephant in the room she cares very much what other people think and so i wonder you know well, why is she constantly talking about it if she really doesn't care about it that doesn't make any sense to me and so she clearly does care a great deal about what people think all the while she's preaching that you shouldn't and that she doesn't culture presupposes though that if we care what other people think that that's a bad thing and yet i i well, I'll speak for my generation because the people that I know that are closer to my age than not, we, we grew up in a world where we knew how important it was to avoid having idiots for friends. And if you are a parent, you know that you don't want your kids. You didn't want your kids growing up with idiots for friends. <laughs> and you were really hopeful that your kids weren't the idiots who were influencing their friends. Right. I mean, these people who may try to influence us to be morons and do stupid, foolish stuff. And of course, as kids, guess what? We all did stupid, foolish stuff, but we really don't want to run with that crowd. Not exclusively anyway. I mean, it just, it doesn't work out. It does not work out when you, when you don't care what anybody thinks it's, it's a way to have a life of a, of a lot of regrets. Cause there are people, there are people, and it probably for most of us starts with our parents. There are people that are devoted to helping us become better. It doesn't mean that they get it right. It doesn't mean that they're always on point. It doesn't mean that they've even got the skills, but parents that love us want our best. They may not know how to go about it, but we still need to have voices in our lives. People that care about us. It translates to our cares too. You know, I, I heard a person once described to me as part of one of their cares at the time was being able to buy this $85,000 luxury, luxury car. I don't share that care. In fact, at the time it was told to me, I didn't share that care. Then I don't share it now. I'm not minimizing it and I didn't minimize it for them. Right. I mean, we care about what we care about. I've had neighbors who have invested tens of thousands of dollars in home renovation. In fact, some probably 
at least a hundred, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. We once had a, we once had a neighbor, not all that long ago, spent the better part of two years, probably closer to two and a half years, redoing the inside and the outside of their house, including all the landscaping, the pool area and, and construction of a detached garage slash workshop already had a two car garage attached, but built in a detached one, two and a half years, a lot. I mean, every, everything in this house got redone only to put the house on the market within a year of complete, <laughs> completing that work. In fact, it was not even a year. And during the renovation, man, they cared about it. A major care. In fact, the husband, he would regularly remark how all of these, all this work, it's adding five years onto my work life. I'm going to have to work five more years than what I wanted to work in order to pay for all this. A five-year delay in retirement in order to fund something that was so important to them, they were willing to live with constant ongoing construction for two years plus with a spigot that just constantly was releasing cash. <laughs> then when it's over, yeah, you know, I don't care so much now, not enough to hang on to the house that they had carefully built to be just exactly what they wanted. It was gorgeous. Now, sometimes our cares are irrational. Sometimes they're foolish even, but I got a sign that's on a shelf in here in the yellow studio. I'll put a picture of it. Tweedledee and Tweedledum are standing there underneath it, along with the purple dragon who hails from Florida many, many years ago. I got him from Florida and the sign. It is what it is, right? It just, it is what it is. We care about what we care about. Now I'm not saying that we're powerless in that we're clearly are not. So Tom Petty's continuing to sing. I'm continuing to listen to this album track by track, and I'm continuing to think and to ponder and I'm pondering my cares and I'm thinking, you know, largely my cares are unchanged if we think of them in terms of buckets, you know, kind of a little bigger. Well, for instance, faith is foremost. No question. Faith is foremost. Family's next. And then providing for family or career, I, that would be third. And if we think of those as buckets, that has not changed. That has been in play virtually my, well, all my adult life. The specifics, yeah, okay, those change. Those are not static. You know, for example, there have been times when in faith, the focus was pretty solely on my working to improve and increase my Bible knowledge. And that's always important. But there have also been times where the focus has shifted a bit because, well, I've been engaged in working to help somebody get through something extremely challenging. And as I'm focused on doing that, I'm not as focused on, okay, I'm all in on just improving Bible knowledge, but it's all within the context of faith family. Same thing. I mean, my wife of 40 years always been top of mind. I mean, she, she, she's been top of mind since we met when we were 18, but there have been times when the kids were the focus, right? And now there may be times when the grandkids are the focus, but not to the exclusion of her and not to the exclusion of other people in the family. It just changes because circumstances and situations change. And the same thing goes for career, professional pursuits, even hobbies. So it's now 
well, it's well past 4 a.m. And I'm remembering our young family as I'm thinking about these cares and the context of them. For some reason, I start thinking about our being a young family and buying our first new house. In fact, it's the only time. Well, no, that's not true. It's not the only time we bought a new house, but it's the only time that we bought a house and we're like, okay, we can pick the carpet kind of a thing. Um, now when you're a first, the first new home that you buy, you know, talk about cares. I'm thinking about life and how life has changed from then till now and significant perspective and circumstances and situations and ups and downs and all the times that we've been blindsided by some things and the other times that we have watched things unfold over time, kind of being able to track it like a hurricane and other times blindsided because it was more like a tornado. It's life, right? It's your life. It's my life. It's everybody's life. I care today about some things that really weren't quite on my radar a few years ago. Well, maybe better said I care more. I'm focused for instance, today, and I've always been focused on spiritual health, but I'm more focused on it today. And I've always been a little bit focused on mental health, but I'm really focused on it today. I think more so than any time before. I am far more aware today, for instance, in how negatively I am impacted by some things, some circumstances and situations, and some people. I've always I've always been aware of it, but that awareness has been heightened over the last number of years. And it first came home, this kind of, I don't know, this kind of shift in focus and this kind of realization that things, well, things can, can catch up with you. Really first kind of leapt to my mind when a number of years ago, I'm on an hour-long phone call with a close friend, um, my friend Ronnie, who passed away. He calls at about eight o'clock. We're on the phone till about nine o'clock and I'm holding the phone up to my right ear. So I've got my right elbow bent holding the phone up to my ear and I hang up and within an hour I'm enjoying indescribable pain in my right shoulder. I mean, I'm on the ground. I'm, it, it feels like my shoulder is out of socket. Not that I know what that feels like, but it's what I would suppose it feels like. Within six hours, Rhonda has taken me to the emergency room and they begin to do a battery of tests. And of course they're trying to make sure that I don't, I'm not having a heart attack or, you know, some life threatening event. And in the course of tests, it shows that I've got some cholesterol levels that are a tad too high. I've got a little bit of plaque in arteries where you really don't necessarily want plaque. Turns out. I also had, because they couldn't discover they, no known reason for the pain in my shoulder. No, we can't, there's, we don't have any explanation for this. So I go see an orthopedic does x-rays. Yeah. You know, his shoulder looks kind of rough. There's some arthritis and turns out severe shoulder arthritis. Thanks to a football injury that happened when I separated my shoulder as a 20 something playing recreational tackle football in the dead of winter on a frozen field like an idiot. But I did. And that was umpteen years ago. And here I am paying the price for it. Yeah. The doctor been an orthopedic surgeon for 17 years. He brings the PA and the, the uh, physician's assistant, the first 
the first meeting that I have with him, the first appointment after the surgery. And all the while he's like, you know, I just really can't explain the severity of that pain. And, you know, but they did what's called open Mumford procedure. It's the same surgery that Tony Romo had. They go in and they kind of shave part of your, you know, your collarbone and whatnot brings her in the physician's assistant. And he says, yeah, Randy's Randy's shoulder, worst shoulder, worst arthritis in a shoulder I've ever seen in 17 years. And I'm like, you lying dog. You told me you couldn't. He said, well, it didn't show up till I got you open. I, it, it, it didn't look that bad. The MRI did not reveal how bad it was. So all of that to say this, yeah, the chickens come home to roost. Yes, they do. Turns out the bad cholesterol, by the way, was about 145, entirely too high to suit my internal medicine guy who believes that statins ought to be in our water supply like fluoride. And so I've been on statins ever since. Yeah, the cholesterol now is about 70. I didn't think 145 was that bad, but, you know, turns out that, well, years of cholesterol at that level, that can take a toll on you as well. Kind of like stress or weight. We don't think any of this stuff's going to catch up with us until it does. Because guess what? Things change. Things add up. Things compound. And that thing that we didn't think about before, suddenly, guess what? That becomes your number one care. I'm thinking of people that have, have suffered heart attacks. I know a number of people who, through the pandemic, suffered some heart attacks and it, that really seems to change people's perspectives and I get it. I get it. I've not had one, but I can certainly, I'm empathetic enough. I can understand it. It happens. We don't think at all about something. We aren't, we don't care. got no care in the world about this particular thing until bam, all of a sudden it skyrockets like a bullet, as they used to say on the charts to number one. And sometimes a life event like a heart attack knocks us to our knees and changes everything. Sometimes a phone call. I'm a Matt Carney fan. Matt Carney is a a Nashville based singer songwriter. He's originally from Oregon. And in 2009, he released a song called closer to love. This is going to, you know, I don't play the music anymore, but I'll embed the video of this. This is a tune worth hearing the first verse. She got the call today, one out of the gray, and when the smoke cleared, it took her breath away. She said she didn't believe it could happen to me. I guess we're all one phone call from our knees. We're going to get there soon. If every building falls and all the stars fade, we'll still be singing this song, the one they can't take away. Going to get there soon. She's going to be there too. Crying in her room, praying, Lord, come through. We're going to get there soon. Oh, it's your light. Oh, it's your way. Pull me out of the dark just to shoulder the weight. Crying out now from so far away. You pull me closer to love. Closer to love. But the the line that gets me and that sticks with me is, I guess we're all one phone call from our knees. And we are. And it happens to all of us. Out of the blue. Well, or the gray, as he says. Of course, he used gray because he needed something that would rhyme with away. (laughs) 
we're blindsided. We get blindsided with a gut punch because, well, we're not protecting ourselves because we're not expecting the punch to the gut till it happens. I first experienced having the wind knocked out of me. I was in junior high playing football during a game on the kickoff team. I never saw who hit me because it came slightly from behind on my left side. I wasn't hurt, but I didn't know that because I couldn't breathe. I mean, when all the air has been knocked out of your lungs and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, okay, the lungs are just seized. There's, you can't expand. You can't breathe in. You can't breathe. You can't do anything for about five seconds. It's not a great feeling. Coach comes over, straddles me, grabs me, you know, around the middle and lifts up my, my, my back off the ground. And yeah, I recovered quickly. Not all recoveries are that fast. In fact, I'll go you one better. Most recoveries are not fast at all. I mean, take the death of a family member, the death of a close friend takes a whole lot longer. And then there are the elongated illnesses and similar events that, you know, they, they don't have a definite conclusion, at least not yet. And man, they can drag on for, well, for however long they drag on. Some cares are so significant, you don't recover. You just adapt so that you can cope. Ideally, we want to adapt so we can cope better, but, well, that ain't easy. I mean, especially when the care is so significant that it seems to define or identify us. You don't believe me? Yeah, just ask any of your friends that have been diagnosed with cancer. They can explain it. Now, for me, God is a vital component. You can turn over to the Gospels of Mark and Luke, and you can find the account of Jesus teaching that parable of the sower. And in that parable, he talks about the cares of the world, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things entering in. Choke the word. They choke the gospel, and they make it unfruitful. Not all cares are bad, but not all of them are important either. Well, like for me, I'm thinking about the $85,000 luxury car. God asks us to cast our burdens on him. Now, that does not mean he has promised to remove them. They may go away. They may not go away. What it means is God wants our devotion to be to him no matter what. And that he will enable us. He will provide for us through his word, especially. He will provide for us strength to help us shoulder these things. Some cares, you just have to buck up and endure it. Others, maybe you can overcome them. Others, yeah, they may go away. So here I am, wee hours in the morning, just keep on rolling by, and I'm thinking about my cares, and I'm realizing that the biggest one is beyond my control. Have you got one of these? Have you got a care in your life that is just completely beyond your control? Now, let me be clear about this. I'm not talking about being a victim. You're not a victim, but there's just this worry, this fretful thing in your life, and you are powerless to do anything about it because it involves somebody else. And it involves somebody that you love very much, but somebody that you have no power to influence. Somebody that wants to just, they want to do what they want to do, even if it's destructive. And you can't live their life for them. Some of you are in the throes of that. Well, so am I. 
so am I. And those of us who are troubled over the life of people that we love, we, we know this feeling, and this is not a good feeling. There are lots of us out here. In fact, I rather think there's more of us than not. My second biggest concern is associated kind of with that one because, well, in similar fashion, I'm not able to do a lot about it. Mostly, I have to just accept. I just have to accept it. I've just got to try to come to terms with the reality of it so I can figure out a way forward in spite of it. So casting the cares on God and leaning on faith, they've not just been critical. They've been really central for me. Now, we're not talking about any miraculous solutions here, though. Just read 1 Corinthians and you'll understand those days are over. I know people believe in miracles, but I don't because God's word won't let me believe that the times for those have ceased. They've stopped. Yes, there's providence. I can't explain it. That's why it's providence. But the Bible also teaches us that time and chance happens to everybody as well. So there's that, but it's arduous work. It is arduous work to try to work through these cares of our life because, well, they have a destructive power. They can, that is, they can consume us. If we allow it, they can dominate our lives. They can dominate our headspace, and we have to do everything possible to avoid that. And if we don't, well, then we can make matters worse, much worse. I was a young leader. I was in my twenties and an employee entered my office one day, one afternoon, he wanted some time and he sat down and I could just tell by the look on his face, this was going to need to be a closed door meeting. So I go up, I close the door. I sit back down at my desk. He sits down at the, in the chair opposite my desk and his eyes are watering. And he begins to tell me about his marriage and how he and his wife are headed for divorce. And he wants me to know. And I sit there and I quietly watch this broken man, this broken husband, and I'm struggling to keep my own eyes free of waterworks because he's a young husband, not too unlike myself at the time. And he tells me about the weeks leading up to this and all along the way, he's explaining how this has impacted his work performance. And he's very sorry for that. And he apologizes to me for this. And I listen. And when he's finished, I told him I was sorry for he and his wife. I asked him, are you, are you sure it's over? You know, I'm hopeful that maybe they could recover, but no, we're long past that. Evidently no hope for that couples counseling that proved unsuccessful. She wants a very different life than the one that they've built together. He wants a home. She wants a party. And so as we're talking, I do my best to serve him at least at work. I freely tell him I'm, I'm not professional. I'm not equipped to help you with this, but I'm certainly qualified to help you here at work. And I'm, I'm glad you told me, but before we adjourn, I just feel the urge. I feel the urge to challenge this guy in some positive way, because I'm thinking, you know, here's a guy, here's a guy who's broken and he, he needs a positive challenge in his life. And I'm hoping that I'm right, but I'm thinking this through before I open my mouth and I'm thinking, you know, I just don't see that there's anything to lose here. So I press forward. And I said to him, you know, the best I can tell you're doing great work here. Normally, I know that lately you haven't, but I think 
doing great work might be under the present distress, the best thing you can do. Cause I know this letting your career follow suit with this area of your life. I get the marriage is failing, but the career failing won't make the marriage failure better. It'll only make it worse. Can we agree that much of this is beyond your control? Certainly it's beyond my control. And can we agree that we will unite together, that we will join forces together? I, I'm going to do everything in my power to help you be as successful as you can be here at work. I know that's not going to make things with your wife. Okay. But it seems to me that you need some positive success. And I know because of your past performance, you're capable of that. And what do you say? We pursue that. We shook hands. I put my hand on his shoulder and told him again that I was sorry. But, you know, my intuition was that if this man allowed this to cripple his career, well, that's going to make matters a lot worse. Sometimes we do make matters worse because we just can't find a way to separate what is happening with us from other things that are important. I'm in no way making a comparison between a marriage and a career, but these are not mutually exclusive things. We have to figure out a way to manage both at the same time. The point is, how are we going to make matters better? What can we do to avoid making matters worse? And if we don't, the cares are going to consume us. Now, part of my concerns or cares focus on clutter. Albert Einstein once wrote, out of clutter, find simplicity. Well, he's a genius. He could, he could maybe do that. I'm, I'm not so much a genius, so it's difficult. I sometimes joke with people that I'm just one good house fire away from being the minimalist that I would like to be. <laughs> so I dug up and ironically listened to this quote. I find a man named Wendell Berry. He writes a book called farming, a handbook. And in it, he writes, don't own so much clutter that you will be relieved to see your house catch fire. <laughs> no, I don't want a house fire. Absolutely don't want a house fire, but it does express the emotional drag that clutter can bring to bear on our lives. I mean, at least for those of us that don't want the clutter, I do understand there are people who they want clutter. I, I don't get it, but they exist. Have you ever wondered what clutter is hiding or what uncluttering might reveal? I suspect quite a lot in both directions. And you know why I know because it's happened to you and it's happened to me and it's happened to everybody on the planet. I, I suspect there've been times in our life where we're going through some box that we packed up and we remark, look at, look, look at this. I wondered where this thing had gone <laughs> in the midst of all this clutter. Here's something that was once valued and it's lost. And we, we didn't, we'd completely forgotten. We had it, didn't know where it was. Maybe, maybe we reconnect with it. Maybe we don't. Maybe we grab it, we look at it, we have this quick trip down memory lane, and then we junk it. Maybe we dust it off. Maybe we find it a new home. Maybe we, hey, let's put it in a place where we can remember where we have it. Clutter and chattel are two edges of the same knife. And I'm using knife instead of a coin, like, you know, two sides of the same coin. Because, well, unless you swallow them, coins aren't dangerous. Knives can be. Clutter and chattel can both be dangerous. And we certainly know through shows like Hoarders 
that clutter can be both physically and mentally dangerous. For me, clutter and chattel can be dangerous because of the distraction they deliver. And they have a negative impact on my mental health, something that, as I said earlier, I'm way more attuned to now than I've been before in my life. Chattel, that's a term you don't hear very much. Well, okay, you don't ever hear it. You know what chattel is. You've already Googled it by now. Chattel is personal property that can be moved. All you got to do is think about if a moving truck came up to move you, all the stuff that would go into that truck, that's your chattel, chattel. Not cattle, chattel. <laughs> all clutter is chattel, but not all chattel is clutter. Does that make sense? It's nearly five o'clock in the morning. And I'm I'm sitting here looking at the clock and I'm thinking, you know, I've I've got to be up. I'm gonna be up by six for the day. I I gotta go lay down. Because at this point in the night, I frankly don't want to tackle any more thoughts about clutter and chattel. I've already come out of this big stinking thought process with cares and besides i'm yawning like a mad dog at this point so i go and i lay down six o'clock arrives wife gives up i'm awake barely you know kind of one eye open kind of a thing so i'm like yeah, i'm just gonna lay here for a little bit so i lay there for another 20 minutes or so i'm drifting in and out and all the while i'm remembering though where i left off clutter and chattel clutter and chattel i'm thinking and i'm laying there and i'm wondering what it might look like to have a very different yellow studio <laughs> i mean here's a place where i'm thinking what if, what if there were what if there were like a couple of bookcases in the yellow studio maybe one large one what if there's a filing cabinet and then my my table, my broadcast table, uh, which is a modified conference table. And then all the technology, of course, the computer and all the podcasting stuff. I mean, what would that feel like? What would that look like? And I think, man, it'd be great. And wouldn't that be great? Yeah, it'd be great. And I know what I would miss. I would miss the spines of all the books that I would have to ditch the books that I've owned for decades. They're just often a great muse. I can look at a title and and that's a, a title that maybe I've been looking at for decades because, you know, I've got books that go back to the sixties and the titles, maybe I haven't looked at the book in forever, but there's that title staring at me every day. Yeah. I'd miss that. I miss that, but I think it'd feel great. So rise and shine. Well, okay. Forget the shine part, but I'm up. It's six twenty AM. And I appear like always to be no worse for the wear of the night by 7. AM I'm jotting down some notes and ideas, and I'm thinking of strategy with all this. Now I full well know that it's going to be some time before I take action. And I know why, because I'm lazy and because I don't want to do the, I don't want to do the work. And it's not because the payoff isn't significant because the payoff's going to be big, but it's because it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> and I really don't want to start something that it's going to take a while to finish. You know, I don't mind beginnings. I don't, I certainly, I love the end. It's that in-between stuff that can drive me crazy on a project like this, but experience has taught me, you know, I can sit around and I can think about strategy all day long. It's not going to help. You know what works? Yeah. We both know what works diving in, then figuring it out in progress. That works much, much better. Now I'm not saying not to think I'm not saying don't be strategic, but Come on, you and I both know we can overdo that. And it makes sense to me because I'm constantly telling coaching clients to take action, not to overthink it, to be thoughtful. Now I do this for one big reason. I'm an overthinker. 
I know the pitfalls of it. You know, be aware of others. Be aware of how your influence impacts others. But don't just aim, aim, and aim, and keep aiming. You know, our reluctance to fire completely destroys any chance of success. You can't hit the target if you don't shoot. And I have found that everybody has their own individual tolerance or barometer for how much aiming they feel like they need to do before they fire. And it's something that is completely adjustable. It can be, we can train ourselves. We can be helped to adjust that. It's not just some hardwired, well, it's just how I am. No, that's not true. Some people do by nature shoot from the hip constantly. You know, they don't ever aim at anything. They're just right. They're just constantly shooting. Uh, these are people who, <laughs> these are people who can be well acquainted with regret. Then there are other people and they aim 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 some more and they don't ever fire. And then there are people that aim and 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 then eventually get around to firing. And, you know, it's all this delay and this procrastination in action. And so there's, there's just very little opportunity for adjustments to be made so that they can hit the target more accurately because, well, they never get a shot off or they're so slow in getting the shot off. You know, if we would put in the work and then improve and adjust that work along the way, well, it will alter our ability to engage in a little bit more speed on this overthinking spectrum. For some, it means being less impulsive. It means being more conscious of the consequences. Hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if I stood on the top of this car and, you know, we did some car surfing at 35 miles an hour. No, this would not be good. This would be stupid. This would be foolish. Don't do that. Think about what could happen. You could fall. You could hit your head. You could be killed. And I know of a story where that happened to a young man. So don't do that. For others, it can mean managing. It can be managing thoughts that, well, this isn't going to work. Or you can think of a million things that are going to go wrong as opposed to thinking about what might go right. So we're approaching eight o'clock and I jump on a zoom coaching call. And at some point the conversation turns toward how we view possible outcomes. Again, I'm real fixated on the ideal outcome. What's the outcome? Will it work? Will it fail? Glass half full glass, half empty. What is it now? Some days earlier in my journal, I had recorded some thoughts about the power of naivete because it seems to me that this is a kind of a big part of curiosity. And I believe bravery, hear me out. I'm having a conversation with a couple of clients and a phrase enters the conversation. And it's a phrase I've never heard before. It's a particular phrase to their industry and every industry, you know, has terms and vocabulary all its own. And rather than act like I understand, or I know what this phrase means, which I don't, I pause the conversation and I say, what is that? 30 seconds. They explain it to me. Okay, good to know. I'm not bashful to ask. I lean into my naivete because I would rather understand and look stupid, which by the way, never happens. Well, yeah, I can look stupid, but it's not because I'm asking a question. I would rather understand and look stupid by asking the question than not understand and appear to be smart, even though I'm not, I just, I don't have any interest in faking smartness or knowledge and understanding. So naivete is a contributing factor to optimism, right? There's something about knowing too much, like 
knowing how hard it is to succeed at something. I mean, so much so that you don't try. I don't want to go to Hollywood and be a star, but a lot of people do. I don't want to go to Nashville and be a music star, but some people do. And people flock to these places because they're chasing dreams. We all know, we know how difficult that is. We know how remote the chances are that people can succeed. And yet every year, some do. Some do. And those who don't, some went and tried, but there's countless others who never gave it a go. I'm not advising you to do one or the other. It's your life. But you get my point. Well, this coaching call ends with me challenging the client to figure out a strategy that can improve their optimism and and having more positive thoughts. Because this particular client, like a lot, kind of leans into a focus on what is likely to go wrong than what is likely to go right. Right? It's just not granted. In my opinion, much of that is kind of hardwired. People have a proclivity to kind of go in one direction or the other, but that does not mean that it can't be altered and changed. It can be. If you are an eternal pessimist and you see dark clouds on every horizon, that is largely a point of view that you absolutely can do something about if you choose to. So these four C's that I've talked about, these represent an array of things in my life. And frankly, they're representative, maybe not specifically, but I think in your life too. Because our lives go from the trivial, like caffeine, to the really important, like cares. And then there's all that stuff in the middle. Our stuff, consumerism, it's alive and well. I mean, just look at all the Amazon deliveries to your house and to your neighbors. The self-storage industry is approaching a $40 billion annual industry. $40 billion in self-storage. Almost 50,000 facilities, give or take, that represent almost 2 billion square feet. The average monthly expense is about $90 a month over a span of 14 months. Over the last 42 years, the average new home built in America has increased by more than 1,000 square feet. In 1973, it was about 1,660 square feet. Today, the average new home being built is about 2,300 square feet. Now, that's down. The peak was in 2015 when houses were almost 2,700 square feet. And in spite of the tiny home trend, in spite of the interest in minimalism, people are still quite interested in more and more and more square footage. Never mind that almost everybody I know reports living in a percentage of their house. And here we are now as empty nesters, and we know that feeling because, well, we live in about a third of our house. Guest bedroom suite, dining room, den, another extra bedroom. These are spaces that largely go unused week after week after week after week. It's a lot of square footage. And the space we do fully occupy, well, it's got way too much stuff. I mean, the Yellow Studio is a perfect illustration. In the Yellow Studio... I'm staring at seven bookcases that are filled from top to bottom. An almost six feet tall CD fixture that holds about 3,000 CDs. Every space in it is filled, and there are stacks of CDs on the top of it. I have a two-drawer lateral file that is filled to the brim. I have a closet 
also filled to the brim. I have a six cube, you know, these cube cloth basket fixtures. I've got a six cube three by three that sits on top of the lateral file cabinet. Then I've got over here in, to the left of me, I've got one corner. It's hundreds of baseballs collected on my morning walks. Too much stuff impacting life negatively, elevating stress, adding anxiety, serving no real useful purpose. You know, so I end this client Zoom session and I've got about an hour on this particular morning before I need to do some other work. Yeah, I don't want to do any more work for the, well, if you count this, if you count preparing for this show and leaning toward wisdom, that's what I spend my hour doing. And I'm thinking about this episode and I'm thinking about how I think I'm thinking about how I'm not likely being nearly as naive as maybe I ought to be when it comes to this stuff, these things that I'm thinking of changing something as trivial as like less caffeine something as important as fewer cares or maybe more precisely being able to focus energy on the cares that I can influence, that I can actually have an impact on versus the ones that I'm powerless to do anything, eliminating clutter. I don't mean reducing it. I mean eliminating it. Zero, zilch, nada. I'm thinking about less chattel, just the things that I use every day, every week, every month, every year. Cause you know what that'll do. That'll cover seasonal clothing, like flannel shirts. I mean, I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, why do I have it? If I don't use it at least every year. Okay. Sentimental things. Those are excluded. I don't have good answers for any of this. If, if you got to this point and you're hoping great, he's going to give us, he's going to give us the key to this. Well, you know me better than that. One thing remains. Here's one thing that I absolutely know to be true. A mind made up. How do you make up your mind about these or anything else in your life? You just do it. You just do. You just commit by taking meaningful action. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Mostly I feel like I'm stuck in aim mode and I'm not used to being stuck in aim mode. So it's time to find the trigger. Time to put my finger on the trigger. Time to pull it. Stay tuned. And there it is. 13 episodes for the year of 2021. Didn't think I'd ever get there, man. Seems like it took forever to get to 10. I'm a little bit of a roll, though. I know that you're sensing a theme. I get it. It's kind of how our lives roll, though, right? Kind of get preoccupied with some things and keep talking things through and thinking about things. I can tell you one big part of, of this project for me, this whole Leaning Toward Wisdom project that started, frankly, back in the 90s, of laying things down, started as a project to lay things down for my kids felt like well the kids when the kids are grown they got families of their own and when dad's gone okay maybe i can uh 
try to help them lean toward wisdom. Doesn't always turn out the way you thought it would. And that's how life goes. But it still is modern tales of an ancient pursuit. And even though we are living in the year 2021, we're going to keep pursuing it. Because what's the alternative? We're not going to give up. I did subtitle this show, and I didn't talk much about it, but 12 months or less to my ideal outcome. Part of my ideal outcome is to, yep, is to make Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, at least a part-time residence, working toward it, working really hard toward it. Will it happen? Don't know, but I'm aiming at it. Got to pull some triggers just got to get myself in position to pull some triggers and so do you think about your ideal outcome think about the things in your life that are problematic the things that you can do something about the things that you need to let go you'll figure it out i'm here to help the website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. my name is randy cantrell coming to you from dallas fort worth texas greetings and welcome inside the yellow studio.